Good morning. Uh, This morning's scripture is John chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours." All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the word for this morning. Here's a, a question for you to consider, friends. 
why should we pray? I can even personalize that. Why, why do you pray if in fact you do? Why, why should we stop what we're doing in a thousand situations and in a, a thousand different ways say some version of help God? Should we pray because we're sinners and need forgiveness and mercy? Should we pray because our faith is weak and we need to, to grow in trusting the Lord? Should we pray because we're powerless to, to change the people and situations all around us? What do, what do you think? Are those good reasons to pray? Yes. Yeah. I'm not going to get you. <laughs> those are very good reasons to pray. But, but none of them quite capture, I would argue, the fundamental reason we should pray. Because one of the most striking things about John 17, and trust me, we're not going to cover this whole passage in one Sunday, but I wanted you to hear the whole thing. One of the most striking things about this chapter is not so much what Jesus is praying, but the fact that Jesus is praying. Follow me? And it's certainly not the first or only time that he did so in his public ministry. So let's ask some questions about He's praying. Is he praying because he's a sinner? Is he praying because his faith is weak? Is he praying because he's powerless to change the people or situations around him? No. No, not in the least. He's God. When Jesus prays, think about this. God himself is praying. God the Son is is pouring out his heart to God the Father in humble, earnest prayer. And God does not sin, and his faith is not weak, and he has infinite power to change all the people and situations around him. So why is he praying? If he has no deficiencies or weaknesses in himself. Is it something he, he didn't really need to do? But, he, but he's kind of throwing us a bone here and giving us an example of what we really need to do because of all our issues and problems. No. No, the reason Jesus is praying is the same reason we should pray. At its core, prayer is verbal communication with God expressing relational dependence on God. It's it's part of what it means to be fully human. To to be created in the image of God is to be created for the joy of relationship with God. It's what Adam experienced even before he sinned in the Garden of Eden. And it's what the the second Adam, Jesus Christ, practiced as one who, who never sinned. And yet, what did he do? He communicated verbally with God as an expression of relational dependence on God. In other words, as a perfect man, a perfect man, Jesus still prayed. Now, I'm not saying... Not saying Jesus' humanity is the only reason he prays. Okay? We, we have to be ever so careful to, to avoid dividing Jesus into parts. 
by saying, well, he did this because he's a man or, or he did this because he's God. Okay, there are times he clearly acts in and through his human nature. And there are times he clearly acts in and through his divine nature. But he does not swap out his deity or humanity like a change of clothes. Or, or blend them into some kind of Superman outfit. He always acts as one person with two natures, fully God and fully man, unmixed and undivided. So whenever Jesus prays, John 17 included, okay, we must not think he is only communicating with the Father as a man or simply because he is a man. To the contrary, there are clearly things he prays in this passage. For example, look at verse five, glorify me. That would be wickedly arrogant for a mere man to pray. The only person who can pray that prayer with moral integrity in verse five is God. And yet we learn something really important from the simple fact that even though he's a perfect man, Jesus still prays. What's that? What does that scream and shout? That, That the foundational reason we should pray that doesn't lie in our sins or in our weaknesses, but in our humanity, friends. Our humanity. When Jesus prays, he shows us what it means to be truly human. And there is a lot in that regard <laughs> for our souls to feast on in this passage. So when, we're, when we see going to spend three weeks in this. When we, when we see the unique ways that Jesus relates to the Father as the only Son of God, we should stand in awe. That's the right response. Okay, when we see the kind of request Jesus brings to God the Father as the Savior who ever intercedes for his own, we should rejoice with gratitude. And when we see what we too should pray as human beings created for what? Relational dependence on the Father, we should obediently follow Jesus' example. So we're going to spend three weeks in this chapter reading the entire thing every Sunday, but focusing on different sections. So this Sunday, we'll give attention to the goal of Jesus' prayer in verses one to five, and then the next two Sundays, the the content of his prayer for us in verses six through 26. And we're going to end our gatherings every week for these three weeks by breaking down into small groups and praying. Because I can't think of a better way to apply a sermon about how Jesus prays than by following his example. So let me give you the the main point of verses one to five up front, and then we'll unpack it, look at some implications. Believe it or not, this is gonna be a one-point sermon, and all you note-taking people can go ahead and get disappointed. It's a one-point sermon. Here it is, okay? Here's the most important thing Jesus teaches us as he begins to pray, first five verses. The goal of prayer is the glory of God. That the aim, the governing ambition, biblical prayer, is the glory of God. Don't miss the context here. Okay? It isn't a prayer in a random place. It's in a a particular moment in Jesus' life. So he's just finished giving the disciples parting words of instruction in chapters 13 to 16 because his, his death is imminent. So he's preparing them. 
patiently for his departure by, by giving him words of encouragement and admonition. And, and John 16, really captures the essence of everything he said to them in this final message. Guys, in the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I've overcome the world. Notice as he stops there, begins to pray that that Jesus is not like a frantic parent (laughs) trying to just cram in as much guidance for the kids as possible before he leaves to work, right? There's a lot of things he doesn't say in these chapters, Nor, nor does he just keep talking faster and faster and faster and faster and faster until the moment of his arrest in chapter 19. Okay, instead, look at verse one. When Jesus had spoken these words, chapters 13 to 16, he just stops and spends his final moments with them praying for them. Which is really stunning if you stop and think about that. Why? Because God himself believed, God himself believed that the most important thing he could do for the troubled men around him was to pray for them. If anybody could make a good case for, you know what, we'll get to prayer, but I got a lot to say. So just listen, okay? It would be God. But he believed the most important thing he could do for the troubled people around him was to pray. We do well to follow his example, friends. Notice the very first thing he says, Father, the hour has come. That's a pregnant phrase because in in John 2, 4, Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. In John 7, 30, no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And again, in John 8, 20, no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. But then at the beginning of the farewell discourse in John 12, 23, and at the end, right here in John 17, 1, Jesus finally says what? The hour has come. The hour. What sort of hour is he talking about? Why, why does he call it? It feels a little dramatic. <laughs> the hour. What's well, the hour of his crucifixion and death, friends? And Jesus calls it the hour because it's the, the central event in his life. In fact, in all of human history. It's the hour on which God's entire plan of redemption turns. That the centerpiece of his mission to to make right all our sin is made wrong. It was the defining hour of Jesus' life. And listen, it should be the defining hour in our life too. Okay, to to live in this world. why, Why do I say that? Why do we need to go there? Well, because to live in this world is to experience all kinds of painful brokenness through the curse of sin, including moments of tragic suffering that permanently alter the course of your life. As a pastor, I get to be around for a lot of those. It's a privilege. It's hard. So your child or your spouse tragically dies. Or you're fired from the job of your dreams. Or 
or someone violates you sexually or you're, or you're diagnosed with a, a, t- a terminal illness, that, pick your acute crisis. The, the common denominator in all those things is that it suddenly feels like my life will never be the same. Permanently altered. It's a life-altering hour. It, it looms. If you've ever been to Western Europe, <laughs> it, it looms like Mont Blanc, the massive, just towering over three nations. It, what happened to you that hour that just dominates your thoughts, your feelings, your, your actions. But, but listen, even in that hour, whether it's, it's past or present or, or waiting for you in the future, Know this, friend, the power and influence of that hour pales in comparison to the hour. And if you're a Christian, if you're holding fast to Jesus as your only hope, then the defining hour of his life is the defining hour of your life. It's the hour that governs the course of your life. From the cradle to the grave, for his victory becomes your victory and his triumph becomes your glory. And his hour ensures, hear this, that no matter what happens in all our other hours, friends, there is no hour that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So, so may his hour always loom larger, the hour in our minds as more determinative, more defining, more life-altering, future-course-directing, hope-guaranteeing, love-assuring, confidence-granting, pick your hyphen, (laughs) than all of the other hours that are real but are not the hour. If Jesus' view of himself and his life was gospel-centered, then the identity and outlook of all who are in him by faith should be the same. And and now, think about this. Jesus isn't trying to be dramatic. He's he's not queuing up a soundtrack, you know, by calling it the hour. it's, It's the hour because it's something that the triune God planned from eternity past to accomplish at that exact moment in human history. Jesus didn't, what's he saying? Jesus didn't die at just some random time. (laughs) He died at a sovereignly appointed time. So so when he says, Father, the hour has come, that's an expression of his lifelong submission and obedience to the sovereign will of God. And notice, what does Jesus do when he recognizes the appointed hour of his death has arrived? He sits quietly with passive resignation and waits for God to do whatever God's going to do because you know he's sovereign. (laughs) No, not at all. He prays. Do you see that? The fact that God is sovereign compels him to pray. Do the same for us, friends. Do, do, Do not pray because you doubt God's sovereignty. Or you think that by praying, maybe I can, I can twist his divine arm. Come on. You know, pray because you trust God's sovereignty. 
Because you know he's, he's sovereignly ordained to accomplish things through your prayers that he will not accomplish otherwise. If the reality of God's sovereign purposes motivates God himself to pray, how can it possibly justify passivity on our part? Now look at what Jesus prays for first. We're still in verse one. <laughs> well, what's his greatest desire, his highest priority? He says, Father, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Don't blow by that word. To to glorify someone is to exalt them or to make much of them, to, to reveal and proclaim the greatness of their worth and value. Why why is Jesus talking about that? Well, because from beginning to end, the Bible tells us that there is no one in the universe more glorious than God. No, No one deserves to be made much of more than him. And guess what? God is intimately aware of that. He's aware of that. He knows that, which is why he repeatedly and justly says in places like Isaiah 42, 8, my glory, I give to no other. And so when Jesus prays, Father, glorify your son, is he asking God to break his word and commit idolatry by by making much of Jesus instead of himself? Like he said throughout all the prophets? Well, well, no, why not? Because Jesus is God. That the son in whom the glory of the father is most fully revealed. In other words, when Jesus is glorified, the father is glorified. Listen to what he says. Glorify your son that or so that or with the result that the son may glorify you. Jesus prays. It's an unmistakable claim to deity. But the timing of it It seems a little strange if you step back and think about it. It Isn't the the hour of which he speaks an hour of unimaginable suffering? Right? Arrest, crucifixion, death. So, in fact, it is all those things. So, So, why not pray, Father, comfort your son? Or, Father, strengthen your son. Why why does Jesus pray, Father, glorify your son? It's because, friend, through the death of God, the manifold glory of God is most clearly displayed for all the world to see. If you want to see the glory of God, then you must fix your gaze on the death of God. And whenever the Bible speaks of glorifying or exalting God, ultimately, that's what it's talking about. Not not adding to God's glory or increasing God's glory. Oh man, I didn't show up at church that Sunday to sing that song. And so God kind of lost a little glory module. No, (laughs) no. We're talking about making much of his glory, remember? Savoring his glory, treasuring his glory, lifting it up for all to see. And from every human angle, that is not at all what the cross appears to be. At all. It doesn't look like an hour of glorification. It looks like an hour of humiliation. What could be more humiliating than hanging naked on a cross until you die from asphyxiation? 
And that after three really promising years of public ministry. Does it get more humiliating than that? But but what is the cross in reality, friend? It's the hour where the the gracious goodness and the unfathomable wisdom and the, the matchless power of God is supremely revealed. And verse two explains why. Look there, God gave him Jesus authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Think about that. On on what basis, for what reason, is the son asking the father to glorify him and in turn to be glorified by him? On, On the basis of the charge the father gave him from eternity past to bring the kingdom of God, the redemptive rule of God, to pass by virtue of his coming obedience unto death. The father gave him that charge, that authority. As the prophet foretold in Daniel 7, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, God the father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall never pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. What is that shout and scream, friend? That Jesus is the one with whom we have to do. Whom you have to do. He's the appointed ruler and king of the universe. God the Father has given him final authority over all flesh. Your life included. Your life is in Jesus' hands. Not yours. You're you're not captain of your fate. Or master of your soul. Jesus is. And and here's the most marvelous thing about King Jesus, okay? That the son exercises his authority over all flesh, not not by selfishly throwing his weight around the way human authorities so often do and wind up in the newspaper because they do. He does it by accomplishing all that is necessary to give eternal life to the chosen people of God. That's how he uses his authority. The, The kingdom of God is Jesus' redemptive rule over the people of God in particular. A rule he achieves by securing eternal life for all whom God has set apart for himself. And what is this eternal life, you ask? We'll look at verse three. Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What's that mean? That eternal life is a whole lot more than unending life. Or a life of your choosing that just happens to keep going on and on and on. (laughs) No, it's the life that comes from knowing God as the Savior he has revealed himself to be. That's eternal life. Which means eternal life isn't primarily something waiting for us in the future. It's a kind of life, a quality of life that we enter into right now. That's what Jesus is saying. That the, the moment you choose to turn from sin and embrace the obedience of faith in Jesus is the moment two different things happen. 
which is, is really two sides of the same coin, okay? One, you come to know God the Father, verse three, as the only true God. You, you recognize that there's a, a radical exclusivity at the very core of the gospel. That the Bible is right when it says over and over and over again that the, the God with whom we have to do is not one among many gods, but that there is one God, no other God. It's the first thing. And, and here's the second thing you come to know. The other side of the coin, you come to know Jesus Christ, the son sent by the father as the savior in whom he is perfectly revealed, who came to earth to do what? To make a way for us to be right with God. If you say, oh, I know God. I'm, I'm spiritual. I'm just not sure about Jesus. Friend, you don't know God at all. You might think you do, but God himself says you don't because you must know the only true God as he has revealed himself to be in the person of Jesus Christ, the son of God. So when Jesus prays at the outset of his prayer, father, glorify your son. He is praying, father, fulfill in my life the purpose for which you sent me. Make that done. How does that happen? When we come to a saving knowledge of him as our savior. That the knowing Jesus describes in verse three is a whole lot more than acquiring an intellectual data point. Oh, I acknowledge the historicity of the fact that Jesus lived and died and rose again. (laughs) No, no, nor is it just having, having an emotional experience where suddenly God feels a little more real than he did before. That could ebb and flow. Right now, the knowing Jesus speaks of in verse three, ultimately, it's it's distinctive quality. It is a faith-filled kind of knowing that responds to the salvation Jesus offers us by trusting him accordingly. D.A. Carson gets this spot on. Eternal life, listen, is not so much everlasting life as personal knowledge of the everlasting one. And that's exactly what the Lord promised would happen. Back in Jeremiah 34. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, you should know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. Why? For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And when that happens, Jesus says, when when the son secures eternal life through his death, resurrection, for who? For all the father has predestined for salvation and entrusted into his care, what goes down? Jesus is glorified. And the father is glorified in him. In other words, sum all this up, the primary way God is glorified in his universe is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love backpacking. I love Western Europe. I love anywhere I can get up high and see the beauty of God's creation. There's a glory in that, friends. There are Romans 1 kind of glory that is real and true and good and beautiful. But know this, if you're like me, the glory of all creation put together pales in comparison to the glory of seeing God dying in our place. Yes, look at creation. It's a gift. 
but may that direct you back to Jesus. Because that's where we see God's glory. The gospel through which he displays the supremacy of his glory is the gospel through which we experience the supremacy of his goodness. And here's what that means. This is incredible. God's passion for his glory is the measure, the extent, the fullness of God's commitment to what is good for you. Tracking with me? Let's say that again, okay? Think about it. No greater good has ever or could ever come our way as sinners than the good news of the gospel, amen? And if Jesus is saying here, because this is the whole point of his prayer up front, that nothing glorifies God, Father, and Son alike, then the salvation he accomplishes through the gospel. Then what does that mean? That means that our greatest good and God's greatest glory are not opposite things or even two things. They are one thing. They're identical. They're one and the same. And so when Jesus prays at the outset of his prayer, Father, glorify your son. He's not just kind of going off and doing some God thing that has nothing to do with us. No, he's asking the father to bring to pass the very thing that ultimately secures your salvation, Christian. He's asking the father to magnify his power by lifting up Jesus on the cross, exalting him as the savior of the world. The entire goal of Jesus' prayer is the glory of God. And in that glory, we all find our greatest good. So when Jesus prays, the outset of his prayer, Father, glorify me, glorify you, glorify God. It's, it's, we can get this wrong. We, we can think, well, okay, okay, okay. Finish your religious spiel. Because that's what all really spiritual people say at the beginning of their prayers. You know? You got to cover your bases or, or pay your spiritual dues. And, and after that, you can kind of get to the stuff you really want to ask God for. Because, you know, Jesus gets to that later on and looks like he spends a lot of time on that. That's kind of good. We got to sort of get the glory thing out of the way first. We can think like that, but that, that's not true, friend. He, he's not praying that God would glorify himself and then kind of getting onto the stuff he really cares about. Okay, it's... The glory of God is the divine desire, the unshakable commitment that that guarantees the success of everything else he's about to pray for. That's why he starts there. It's, It's the most important prayer Jesus prays, and it's the most important prayer we can ever pray. More than anything else, Father, glorify your name. And then when I'm done with that, I'll get on to all the things I want you to do for me. No! Are they two things? (laughs) No, they're one thing, right? Father, glorify your name for when you do that, I know that everything good for me will follow. You'll make it happen. You'll get it done because your glory and my good always go hand in hand. Do you pray like that, friend? On one level, let's be honest, Jesus' prayer has already been answered. It was answered actually less than 24 hours later when he was lifted up on the cross. But you realize his prayer reflects a divine desire, a divine goal that should still inform and guide our prayers today. I mean, what what does Paul tell us in Colossians 1.18? That God's plan. God's desire, God's, God's sovereign purpose is that in everything, 
Christ might be preeminent. That Jesus Christ might be glorified. Our prayers included. So, very practically, when the goal of our prayer is the glory of God, our prayers will be impacted in two ways. First, we discover a tremendous source of power and encouragement to pray and keep on praying. Okay, it sounds like this. Father, you could not be more committed to your glory. So in this situation, in in my marriage, in my child, in my church, in my friend's life, in my work, in my school, would you glorify your name, God? Act for the sake of your renown. Act for the sake of your praise. Act so that all can see that you are God and there is no other. Display your power to save. Make known the saving might of your arm. When you pray like that, there's, there's great encouragement and power and strength to keep on praying because you know you are praying for the one thing God desires more than anything else. We discover a power and encouragement to pray. Second impact, when the glory of God is the goal of your prayer, it will change not just the the confidence with which you pray, but listen, it will change the very things for which you want to pray. What do I mean? Well, for example, if if Jesus' greatest desire is is your greatest desire, Father, glorify your son, then, then you will no longer ask small things of a small God you will ask great things of a great God. Your your prayers will no longer orbit around the impoverished son of your own comfort and convenience. Your your prayers will be shaped by a far greater glory. You You will long for Jesus to be made known in Thailand. And you'll pray accordingly. You'll long for Jesus to be honored in the, the young men and women in this church. You will pray accordingly. You may still pray for someone to be physically healed, but you won't stop there. You'll you'll pray for them to know Jesus better through their suffering. You'll pray that you would know Jesus better through your suffering. Your your prayers for your children won't focus on getting them into a good college or just keep them safe or keep them out of trouble or or land a high paying job. And none of that's wrong, but, but, but you will be asking greater things of a great God. You'll be praying for your kids, Lord, open their eyes to see the ravishing glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Please take care of my friends. There's a warning here at the beginning of John 17 that your prayers are not an attempt to hitch God to the wagon of your own comfort and convenience. Ask, seek, and knock, yes, so that God might be glorified in you and around you. Don't don't pray, Lord, make my life easy. (laughs) Or sort of hide that through lots of lingo, because we can disguise that too. No, pray, Father, glorify your name. And when the Father chooses to glorify his name by leading you and sustaining you on the road of suffering in the same way he exalted his son on the road of suffering. Remember this, okay? Because this will happen. He's promised it. It is a privilege to lay down our life for the Savior who's laid down his life for us. Remember that. 
In verses four and five, Jesus recounts his faithfulness to do that very thing, to live for the glory of God. Look there, he says, he prays, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. See two things in that, friends. Okay? Look carefully at those verses. First, notice we do not glorify God with our lives primarily by avoiding sin or not doing things that are wrong. Okay? We, we can think like that as Christians. We can, we can think glorifying God with my life means simply, merely, only not sleeping around, using bad language, don't be a jerk to people, don't look at pornography. Do you only watch G-rated movies? <laughs> I mean, are some of those things really important? Absolutely. But glorifying God requires so much more than just living a life that doesn't break certain rules. It it means living a a surrendered life, a submitted life, a a life that doesn't say, okay, God, I've got all my priorities and my purposes and we're just going to do this thing. And, you know, I'll just kind of honor the periodic boundaries. Oh, I guess I can't go that way. I'm a Christian. I guess I can't go that way. Well, what God cares about is what are the priorities and purposes governing the whole? Calling the shots. Am I just the, don't do that, don't do that, don't break these rules, you know, like, like playing taboo where you, you ever play that game where you try to get your other team to guess a word, but you just can't use four or five of these words as long as you don't do that? God's happy. No. No, glorifying God means following Jesus' example here. Lord, I choose to make your work my work. I, I choose to devote my time my energy, my, my money, my gifts and abilities to, to your priorities and purposes, to what makes much of you, not much of me. I, I choose to not set the course of my life by asking, what do I feel like doing? But Lord, what good and glorious work do you want me to do? And have you prepared for me to do that I might walk in it? Could that mean Curling up on a couch with your spouse and watching Netflix? Absolutely. Oh, thank you, Pastor. (laughs) I was getting worried there. (laughs) But why do we presume it always means that? And that it would never mean, it would never possibly Abandoning my American dream. Selling my stuff so that I can go to another country and tell people who, if I talk about Jesus, they say, Who's that? Why do we presume it always means Netflix, but never that? Do we really want to do God's work, friend? Are you asking him, Lord, what work do you want me to accomplish? Because that is how we glorify God on earth. 
Here's another implication. <laughs> Some of us really need to hear this. There, there is only one person in the universe who can say with perfect faithfulness and integrity, Father, I accomplished the work. <laughs> you following me here? That you gave me to do. <laughs> I mean, can you say that? Well, should we uh, try? Yeah, it's called following Jesus. Kind of important. <laughs> yeah. But we all stumble in many ways, right? That's why you said no. I'm with you. But, but don't let that discourage you, Christian. Why not? Because the Lord delights to use your feeble, insufficient works to make much of his perfect, completed work. And the biblical goal of good works is not getting people to say, wow, look at how sufficient you are. No, the goal is for people to look at us and immediately find their eyes drawn to the sufficiency and faithfulness and perfection and already accomplishedness of Jesus' work. Starting with the work he accomplished at the cross from, from beginning to end, in other words. The story of the universe isn't centered on our work or our glory. It's centered on God's work and his glory. And that's why Jesus concludes the, the whole first section of his prayer in verse five by, by asking the father, would you restore me to the, the position and the experience of glory that I enjoyed in heaven prior to coming to earth as a man? And now father, look there, verse five, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Full stop. Besides implicitly asserting that the material universe is not eternal, that's a whole sermon, <laughs> and that there was a time when God existed and this world did not. What else is Jesus saying? <laughs> well, He's asking for the father to bring him home. He's saying, my mission is nearly complete. My work is done, father. But before the world existed, I shared your divine glory and all its position and privilege. I haven't lost glory. Don't go there but the display of it and the privileges of it have been laid down, set aside, that I might fulfill your saving plan, Father. Now I ask you, restore me to your right hand with my pre-incarnate splendor. And when Jesus rose from the grave and ascended back into heaven, God the Father said, yes, to that prayer. So what does that have to do with us? Good for you, Jesus. Well, a whole lot. Because it means our lives are part of a bigger story. A greater glory. A, a glory that, that extends back into eternity past and will never crumble or fade in the future. And that glory is not about you. <laughs> you know what good news that is? 
Friend, when you realize, when you realize that our life is part of such a bigger story that is all about the glory of God in Jesus Christ, what freedom we find from burning ourselves out, trying to prove or validate our worth or make much of ourselves or, or, or show that we matter. That's slavery. It's in part because I, I saw the slavery of that, that I wanted to be a pastor. There were a lot of other very attractive things, good God glorifying things, mind you, that I considered doing. I'm not saying if you see the glory of God in Christ, we all become pastors. (laughs) But I am saying that when you see that that's the biggest thing going down in the universe, you won't make the same choices. You won't love the same things. You won't pray the same way. You won't, You won't be deceived by the American dream. Jesus is the glorious one, church. He's always been glorious. He will always be glorious. And when you devote your life to living for Jesus, you are devoting your life to a glory that transcends and will outlast all the fading glories of this world your own included. So don't, don't live for what's passing away. Live for what's eternal. Live, live for the glory of Christ. Why does Jesus end this first section by talking about the way he lived for the father's glory? I thought he was talking about how he was praying for the father's glory. Why does he go from what he was praying for to what he lived for? Notice that? I think this is the reason When God's glory is the aim of your life, it will become the goal of your prayers. And when God's glory is the goal of your prayers, God's glory will slowly become the goal of your life. They go hand in hand. And Jesus is showing us the way, even through how he prays.